for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today, our teaching text comes from Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, and 2, 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Shelby. Hey, before we hop into this really, really great text, I want to share three things with you, three opportunities. I just want to invite you to pray uh, as part of our church, with our church. uh, That Some of these are short, midterm, long-term kind of things that uh, are going on with us. One of those is we've been really blessed to rent this facility. Uh, I think that there's been an invisibility cloak over this building for the last like five years. It's largely been vacant. It was uh, originally uh, an Assembly of God church. Funny enough, I was raised Assembly of God. It was a funeral home for 20 years. So which means, you may not know this, we have an embalming room downstairs. So just our options are open for cradle to grave ministry in the years to come. And we've just been really blessed to be running this facility. We're also, especially if you dropped off young children, know that we're filling it. And so I just want you to know that our board and and Cornerstone leadership are praying through long-term options. Is this something that we should explore purchasing? Uh, If we purchased it, could we renovate in such a way that made sense for our values and our long-term goals? We've We've said in the past we want to be strategically small. But also, we want to make space for people. And so there's a tension there. We have to walk, keep in step with the Spirit. So we're praying about that. I want you to pray about that too. That intertwines with another dynamic of our church is that in the years to come, and I hope that this is not the first time you're hearing this, in the years to come, we hope to plant more churches. New things help reach new people. Um, There were 20 of us five years ago, and and now like lots of people have been able to build spiritual friendships and be shaped by the gospel and participate in God's work of renewal in Tulsa through our church, and I praise God for that. But we want to develop new pastors and new worship leaders and new teams to reach new people. And so as we think about growing as we in this space where we gather, we also want to think about, Lord, where are you inviting us to help send new people to start new stuff? And that also leads to a third thing that we're praying about is for the last year or so, we've been quietly looking for another pastoral teammate to join our staff. And all of these things kind of come together, but we don't know exactly how yet. (laughs) And this is where we're just trusting in the slow work of the Holy Spirit, trying to be attentive. And I want to bring these things up to you to invite you to pray about them, Uh, not only with, with the staff, with the board, but we're the church together. Uh, The church is not the building, the church is not me, the church is not the service itself, it's the community of friendships, the network of friendships under the Lordship of Christ. 
And so as we steward these opportunities together, we need to ask for the Lord's wisdom together. So I want to bring those up to you, hopefully not for the first time, and just ask you to pray. Will you pray? Will you pray? Okay, thank you. Okay, this text, Hebrews 1 and 2, is really, really rich. Let me set the scene for you as we dive into the book of Hebrews. A couple of generations ago, some missionaries came to this this urban setting and shared the gospel. And a small church was born. Though they didn't see Jesus with their own eyes, though they didn't hear him with their own ears, though they didn't get to touch the scars in his hands and his feet and the wound in his side, they believed in the message of the gospel. And it transformed their lives. In all likelihood, this church that was in an urban center had been Jews before, Hellenistic Jews, familiar with the Old Testament, especially in Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And as they learned the message of the gospel and as they encountered the person of Jesus, they believed in him. The Spirit fell and confirmed the reality of the message of the gospel with signs and wonders. Many of them spoke in tongues. They had supernatural affirmation that what was going on in and through Jesus was real, and they believed. They went back to the scriptures that they'd known, and they were now reading the scriptures through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ, and it was coming alive to them as Jesus, the living word, was speaking through the scriptures that prophesied about him. As they grew in their faith, they grew in boldness to publicly witness about Jesus and live in the kingdom way, and that's when their trouble really began. They began to be softly persecuted for being atheists, not believing in the pagan deities. And they were just preaching a message of peace. They were caring for the poor. They were picking up little children who'd been exposed when they were born a girl and the parents didn't want them and they left them out in the street. And the first Christians started orphanages. They were living in a kingdom way and people were despising them for it. They were scoffed at initially, made faces, but... It started to get a little more systematic and a little more intense. Some of them were kicked out of their trade guilds. Imagine that you work in your industry as a teacher or in real estate and you are, your license is revoked because you are a Christian. This is how it started for them. Accused of being insurrectionists, of being unpatriotic, they began to be more openly opposed. Some of these believers uh, were beaten up. They were, uh, they were humiliated. They were killed, though they were preaching a message of peace through the cross of Jesus Christ. The church was in this urban center, and as time went on, uh, the people who first had brought the gospel to them began to die out. And those who had been the first believers began to die out themselves. And now the faith has come to a second generation. And they believe, they saw what God had done in the hearts and the lives of their parents and in their community, and yet they've also withdrawn. They're gun-shy. They've been hurt. They've seen the cost of following Jesus in the lives of their parents. They're a bit surprised that their parents had been expecting that Jesus might return in their lifetime, and he still hasn't come back in their lifetime. They felt the cost of discipleship, and they've pulled back. They're reluctant to enter into a public melee. They know that it could cost them and their children personally. 
And some of these second generation believers have grown lethargic and spiritually lax. Some have drifted from the Christian community. Others have openly renounced the faith and walked away themselves. Now, when you picture the church that I'm describing, you might imagine that it's a couple of hundred people like this, like us. In all likelihood, it's, it's a group that's not a ton bigger than your apprentice group, enough people that can cram into that little apartment on the fourth floor. It's just a small number of people, in all likelihood, or a number of small communities meeting in homes or apartments. And this fledgling community, now in the second generation of believing, is sitting on a knife's edge And it really could go either way. Are they going to stay faithful to the way of Jesus and carry their own cross and their generation and their context? Or are they going to drift into oblivion? Now with COVID and the political climate of the last six years or so and the racial reckoning that's gone on and so many of us who know folks who are reevaluating whether they actually believe And as pastors and congregations, you know, pastors who started churches a generation ago, those pastors are beginning to retire. Some of those congregations are getting older. I have to imagine that there are a lot of churches, even in our town, who feel a bit like the church that's being addressed in Hebrews. They're concerned about the future. They're worried about those who are marginalizing the role of faith to the outskirts of their lives. They're allured by a life of leisure, and it's easy just to be deadened to that that message that grows sometimes too familiar that we begin to quietly despise it. The author of Hebrews, whoever that is, is hotly contested. Some people say Paul, some people say Mary, the mother of Jesus. There are any number of options. But the author of Hebrews, whoever he or she is, is bound and determined to ring the bell and to alert and to rein in those who are drifting. And that's why this book was written. It's one big warning against falling away. It's a call to wake up and it's an encouragement to keep the faith. Now, unlike many of the other epistles, this one doesn't begin. An epistle is just a letter sent by an apostle to a church. Unlike many of the other New Testament epistles, this one doesn't begin with a greeting that clearly identifies the author and the audience. It doesn't begin with, here are all the reasons I thank God for you. It also doesn't begin with some kind of doxology. It just hops in in an almost cinematic, dramatic kind of way. A theocentric drama. Here's verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. This audience who would be familiar with the Old Testament in Greek would call to mind all of the ways in the past that God has spoken to their forefathers, their ancestors. They'd remember Abraham and the patriarchs. They'd definitely think of Moses and the giving of the law. They'd remember Joshua and the conquest. They'd remember the tumultuous period of the judges. They'd remember the prophets beginning with Samuel who anointed Saul and then David to be kings over the people of Israel and Judah. They think of all the prophetic activity with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all of that that surrounded the kings before and during and after the exile of Israel and Judah. They'd remember the different mediums through which God had spoken to them. God led them through a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night in the case of the Israelites. God spoke through a donkey for crying out loud. God spoke through acts of power, through angels. 
And again and again, this community of Israel was marked as the ones to whom God spoke. This was the thing that set them apart as a community, or they were the ones who were given Adonai's words. Verse 2 draws a contrast. It says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Something in continuity and discontinuity with the past is present now. That God keeps speaking, God continues to want to be known as a point of continuity, but the manner of speech and the medium of the message is in discontinuity with the past. God is doing something new. He's spoken to us by His Son. Now, there's a tendency uh, among those of us who've grown up with, like, cool technology to be unamazed, you know, by, uh, you know, compared to people who are, like, seeing it and experiencing it for the first time. Uh, I'm always amazed when I'm on a plane, probably watching the Lego movie, you know, just to make fun of myself. And, uh, and I can text with someone who's on the ground. Isn't that amazing? Or FaceTime. Isn't that amazing? Think about all the generals and all the wars of human history and the kind of advantage they would have if they'd had FaceTime. <laughs> you know, we, those of us who grow up with something often are unamazed. There's a comedian uh, who makes fun of those who complain about having a bad flight. Some of you have perhaps seen this on an old Conan O'Brien episode. He's making fun of those who had a bad flight like, listen, this was the worst day of my life. First of all, I had to sit for 20 minutes and wait to board the flight. And what happened after that? Then I had to sit for 45 minutes on the tarmac, and we had to just sit there, and it was a little bit hot. It's like, oh, really? What happened after that? Did you fly through the air incredibly? Like a bird, did you partake in the miracle of flight, you non-contributing zero? You got to fly. You're flying. The comedian said, everybody when flying should go, oh my gosh, I'm flying through the air. I'm sitting in a chair in the sky. <laughs> the Oregon Trail has taught me that in years past, you would get dysentery or cholera <laughs> for lengthy trips like that. We lose our sense of awe. And that's the second time I've brought up the Oregon Trail in recent weeks, if you've been listening. <laughs> we lose our sense of awe and wonder. And in a similar way, the author of Hebrews wants us to maintain a sense of awe and wonder that in these last days, God is still speaking to us and he sent us his son. Y'all, do you get what's happening here, says the author? God used to speak through clouds and through animals and through the written word and the stone tablet, but now he's speaking to us through the living word, his own son, Jesus the Messiah. Peter picks this up in, at the beginning of his epistle. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he appreciates, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Concerning this salvation, everything that's been given to us in Jesus, 
the prophet searched intently and with great care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And he ends in verse 10 and says, even angels long to look into these things. We've been given a perspective that makes them jealous. God has spoken to us by his sons and we're the, his son and we're the lucky ones alive when it happened. The author goes on to magnify the wonder of the son's revelation by use of three Old Testament allusions that are hidden in plain sight. The first one we see in verse 2. The son whom he has appointed heir of all things. This calls us back to Psalm chapter 2, a royal psalm of David. Begins, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And then verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. David is speaking prophetically. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry with you. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus is portrayed with those who had a scripture-soaked imagination, who'd prayed through the Psalms. They, they would go immediately to Psalm chapter 2. Jesus is the heir of all things. He's portrayed as the royal son, the kingly son. The second part of that scripture tells us through whom he made the universe. Through whom he made the universe. There was a tradition in the Old Testament that God made the universe through wisdom. And wisdom was often personified. We see it in Proverbs chapter 3. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. Wisdom is again personified in chapter 8, verses 22 to 31. There's an apocryphal work called the Wisdom of Solomon that talks about the role of wisdom in creation. It says, wisdom is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her. Wisdom is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. It goes on and on. Wisdom was personified as a being distinct from God. John picks up this theme in his gospel in John 1 when he identifies Jesus as the Greek concept of the logos, the word through whom all things were made. He said, verse 2, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is the heir of all things. And through Jesus, Jesus, Paul says elsewhere, is the wisdom, the message about Jesus. He is the wisdom and the power of God. Jesus is the one through whom he made all things. We shift to verse 3. The author says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Uh, Jake, are you in here? <laughs> okay, I don't think he's here. Great. Well, look up at this light at the top center here. Jake shot that dart into that light, if you're wondering. <laughs> Two days after we had a lift in here when we could have taken it down. 
but it's kind of an abstract sun. And we see in, in the center the light, and then emanating from the center, we've got these beams. And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. It's the beam that came, he's the beam that came to us. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, his spitting image. He sustains all things by his mighty word. This sounds a lot like Jesus in John chapter 14. He's having a conversation with his disciple Philip, and Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus, after walking with Philip for some time, says, Don't you now know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen the sunbeam, you know what the sun itself is like. Many inadequately appreciate this, that to see Jesus is to see God. And, and we talk about God in an abstract sense, or we talk about what God is like. But those of us who have met the person of Jesus, the New Testament trains us to see that, that to see Jesus is to see the Father. Do you know that God is Christ-like? If you want to know what God is like, we see the clearest and the fullest expression in the person of Jesus Christ. And finally, the author picks up on one more image, Old Testament image of Jesus, and that of the royal priest. The priest who offers sacrifices for sins and then takes the position of authority at the right hand of the Father. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, we don't have one Old Testament image that perfectly fits this, the, the monarch priest. But here in Jesus, our, our perfect priest has become our perfect king, ruling at the Father's right hand. This image of one who sits at the right hand of God comes to us from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Only one will sit at the Father's right hand. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The priest who offered sacrifices on behalf of sinners is now the one at the right hand of the Father, given the authority to rule on behalf of those sinners. The great high priest who can empathize with our weakness, who said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, is ruling over us and interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. This is good news. I love, I always love uh, Revelation chapter 5 where we, we talked about this uh, this summer when heaven is in mourning because there's no one who can be found on earth, in heaven or under the earth who can unfurl God's promises for all of creation. John says, and then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. After Jesus provided purifications for sins, he was the perfect sacrifice. The lamb who was slain for us before the foundations of the world sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
He says all of this. He goes on in verse 4 to talk about angels, which might be a little bit confusing. The rest of the chapter is devoted to angels. There was this tradition, particularly coming out of the Septuagint, the Greek uh, Old Testament, that God had, inter had intermediaries giving the law to Moses through angels, and that's kind of what the author is referencing here. But then he goes to chapter 2, and, and the first sentence of chapter 2 summarizes this whole point that he's trying to make. Look, God used to speak to our forefathers, our ancestors, in tons of different ways, but now he has spoken to us by his Son, the heir of all things, the one through whom he made the universe, the one who's provided purifications for our sins, who sustains all things by his word. Therefore, pay attention to him. We must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. In short, after all of this, he's saying, friends, this is a big deal. Don't take this for granted. The Son is speaking. Listen and be vigilant. Do not drift away. Now, in the marathon of following Jesus, we go through lots of phases. Oh, I wish we could stay in those places where we felt so close. Uh, oh, it's the Rich Mullins line. Uh, sometimes, sometimes the night was beautiful. Man, I keep starting quoting psalm, songs that I didn't plan on and then forgetting how they go. <laughs> sometimes it seemed to be so close you could touch it, but your heart would break. Or there's that Monsters of Folk song, very different. Sometimes you feel really close, and then you're back behind the glass again. I wish we could feel close to God all the time. I wish the scriptures always jumped off the page like they did when I was 19 years old with my first 30-pound study Bible at New Life Ranch, learning how to read the scriptures. I wish it were always like that. But our life with God is not always like that. It's a marathon. And there are ups and there are downs. There are times where you feel close and there are times where you're like, are you even taking my calls? Is anyone up there? Sometimes we feel apathy, sometimes we feel passion, sometimes we are giving God our best attention, sometimes our attention is directed elsewhere. Sometimes we get curious about God and so we listen to podcasts or we go to a worship service or we read nonfiction books or we go to group or we ask questions and every now and then we might even feel inclined to crack open the Bible and see what we can find there. At other times, we're just bored and disinterested, and we're doing it because that's what we do. We're distracted. Sometimes we're even living in open rebellion. And life for us is a lot like Peter and James and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And not the cool part of seeing Moses and Elijah. The part that follows where smoke descends on the mountain, and they don't know what to do with themselves. And they've seen some things, and they've heard some things, and there's rumors of things to come, and they find themselves lost. We know that truth exists, but our vision is obscured. We don't know what to do with ourselves. And through the din of voices and opinions, and amid the confusion of our times, the Heavenly Father speaks up and says to Peter and James and John, frantically running in circles, This is my son. Listen to him. And when the smoke cleared, the text tells us they only saw Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. It ought to be encouraging to us that God wants to be known by us. 
And we ought to pay attention, says the author of Hebrews, that he's speaking to us. And he speaks even now through his son that he loves. Listen to him. Now we're all in different places. Different levels of enthusiasm and lack of enthusiasm, maturity and immaturity in our life with God. How can we start today? That is the message. I don't mean to preempt sermons in the weeks to come. But that's the message repeated again and again, the warning today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. How do we start today? This is my bishop, Todd Hunter, said this. He said, today, start where you are. This is so comforting to me. Jesus always starts where people are, not where he wishes they were. He loves you, and he has unending grace for you. So where you are right now, with your belief or your unbelief, with your joy or your discouragement, with your closeness or your feelings of being far away from him, ask him to help you. Ask him to help you get to the place where you, through your life, words, and deeds, facilitate the unfolding of his purposes on earth. Wherever you are, simply Ask him to help you. And I would ask you that question as a way of reflection as we get ready to receive communion. Where are you in your life with God right now? It may be the case that you've not even asked that question or tried answering it for yourself in some time. And that tells you something. But where are you in your life with God right now? How would you characterize it? Another question you might think about is where do you want to be? You might remember seasons where you felt like you were walking closely with him. Do you want to be there again? Is that your desire? Is that your intention? Uh, I like this practice in Scripture of going back in, at other times and remembering how you followed him at first. Maybe you'd remember, well, how did he speak to me in the past? In that season where I felt so close, what were those things that I was doing to put myself in a position to hear his voice? Maybe you'd feel compelled to revisit those habits or practices. Maybe you'd read the Bible and journal and, and just talk to him about it. God wants to be known. He wants to be found by those who will seek him. And a really great a piece of objective news is that here as we gather and worship with the church, he wants to be found by us at the table. And he willingly offers himself to us through the bread and the wine. And if, you're of, of the, if you have a desire to be met by him and to be near him, as you come to communion, I would encourage you to just state those intentions to him and ask him to come near to you. And I'm going to pray in just a minute that as just as we eat this stuff, this cracker and this juice, he'd fill us again with his Holy Spirit, that he'd assure us that he reminds us, that, he, that he loves us, and that he'd give us the nourishment and the gumption and the moxie to just keep believing and to keep pressing in. Anyone who comes to him must have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to, to please God because everyone who comes must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If you want to find him, he's delighted to speak to you. Let's ask him to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know 
in the first generations, there was surprise and at times disappointment that you'd not yet returned. And we feel that too. Sometimes we feel so close and sometimes we wonder if we're making the whole thing up. But Jesus, we trust in you. We trust that you are the word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. We trust that through your spirit, you're drawing us closer to yourself. Lord, I pray that you will take whatever seeds of faith and desire that exist in the hearts of our people and in my heart, that you cause those to sprout and to put down roots, that as we cooperate with your spirit, you would nourish those roots and cause them to bear fruit in our lives. I pray, Lord Jesus, that through the scriptures, through the table, through your spirit, you would speak to us and you'd reveal yourself again as the God who speaks. We invite the operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray that the Holy Spirit, that you'd manifest your presence in our lives in ways that we can hang our hat on. Do the things that we cannot do. I pray that you would forgive the sinner. I pray that you'd heal the one who is sick. I pray that you would encourage the one who is disheartened. I pray that you would unite and energize and guide the church. May Jesus Christ be lifted up, up among us. And as you do this, may you draw all people to yourself. So pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.